this weekend is really about remembering those who have died from being a part of our military. And God, we lift up all those families who have lost loved ones in wars. And God, we, we take this time to remember that because the freedoms that we have, they've come at a cost. They've come at a cost of life. And then, God, we do lift up, again, those who have died, not only this past year, but in many years. Those who have died by the hands of officers, Lord God. God, we lift them up as well. God, even this past weekend, uh, this past week, there was a case in Cleveland where I believe two unarmed people had been shot and police were let go. And God, you know the details there, Father, but I just lift up those families to you as well. But this is a weekend when we grieve because of those that have been lost. Lord, I pray that we just don't have barbecues that, that make us think of the good times that we have, but God, I pray that these barbecues are times when we just take a moment to remember the freedoms that we have are because they've come at a cost. Now, God, I pray that during Memorial Day weekend and during a time we're resting, I pray that in this moment, Lord, you would empower me to preach your word in such a way where we know that you have spoken. We ask all this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, listen, um, it's Memorial Day weekend. I'm glad those of you that were able to come, I'm glad you're here. Praise the Lord. And uh, I'm really excited because we're winding down the never-ending series of follow, praise God. <laughs> uh, I think we are in week seven. We've got one more week. And uh, listen, this series is all about describing what it looks like to follow Jesus. What does Jesus expect of you when you come into relationship with him? And so the beauty of this is Jesus states his agenda quite clearly up front. And we see different ways that he has talked about following him. But last week, we saw what is the public evidence of being a follower of Jesus Christ. How do we know you're a follower? Well, we said it's not the way you sing. It's not your gifting. It's not even your faithful attendance, praise the Lord. The public evidence of Christianity is love. The public evidence of Christianity is love. And we said if you are going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you are going to be a loving person. Now, this is very important because what we said was there is a gravitational pull towards rule-keeping rather than relationship building. Whenever you have religion, there is this desire that we can know the most, that we can have the most knowledge, or we, we are the most faithful, or we sing the best. And when that happens, there becomes a top and there becomes a bottom. You know, the people that know the most, the people that sing the best, the people that are most faithful, they're seen at the top, and the others are seen at the bottom. And that's what Jesus stepped into. Jesus stepped into a culture where you had this group called the Pharisees, and they were on the top, and they were the most religious, and then everybody else was underneath them. Jesus speaks into that kind of culture. And the beauty of that is that there is a natural, that, that gravitational pull of rule keeping, that's the same in every kind of organizational culture. Where the people who cert, follow certain rules, they rise to the top. And then they treat people at the bottom less. There's a top and there's a bottom. Every organization, the people at the top, they run things. The people at the bottom, they're subservient. And so if you were to look at the presidency, 
He is at the top. He has a cabinet, and they have privileges. If you were to look in the sports world, you have coaches and you have players. If you were to look in the business world, you have executives and managers, and then you have lay people. You have the laborers at the bottom. And so when you walk into a store, you know there's someone who owns this, and then you know that there's a janitor who cleans up. When you walk into a place, you know that there's someone who works the register, and then you know someone who owns the entire place or is the manager. There's a top and there's a bottom. And the incredible thing is, this has created in every culture around the world this idea that everybody wants to be the boss because somebody wants to be in charge. You know, there's, there's that mentality that if you're the boss, you've got the most say, you've got the most authority, you've got the most power. You know, the boss calls the shots. And if the boss calls the shots, then what happens is the people underneath them tend to detest their boss. Praise the Lord. I mean, even um, there is a gentleman named Damon Dash. I figured I'd get a reaction out of that. I, I, I put that in your attention. There's a gentleman named Damon Dash. Now, Damon Dash used to work for Rockefeller Records, and he was in an interview on Power 105, 105.1, the radio station. And this is what he said. He said, if you have a boss, the boss is like your daddy. Because the boss forces you to do things you don't want to do. And even though he got some shots for that, people suddenly agreed and said, yeah, that's kind of true. The boss is in charge. The boss is the leader. You've got to follow what they say. And everybody kind of gets frustrated at having to follow the authority. But, you know, when you have that kind of culture, that the boss is in charge kind of culture, it makes everybody power hungry. Because nobody likes to be underneath a boss like that. You'd rather be on top. You want to be the one calling the shots and telling people what to do. And so you have this culture of performance and power hunger that gets created over time. But the crazy thing about Jesus is he was the most dynamic leader of his day. And he did not operate by this boss is in charge kind of mentality. Jesus, it's amazing when you look at him, people would follow him. People would listen to him. People even served him. And he had this unique perspective on leadership. Jesus' dynamic attitude of leadership was this. I am a servant to all. I simply want to help people. And so he had this attitude of servant leadership. Serving basically means that you are taking the initiative for the benefit of someone else. You want to see someone else be better than what they were. And when you look at Jesus and his life, the most fascinating thing is that's what he spent all his time doing, serving. When you look at Jesus and his miracles, yes, he, he walked on water one time, praise the Lord. But when you look at everything else he was doing, it was turning water into wine because they ran out of wine at a wedding. When you look at what he's doing, he's healing a paralytic. He's always helping and serving people. And this was the demonstration of Jesus' ministry. It was service. And Jesus was always serving people, always helping people. That was the essence of his ministry. And so if we are to become followers of Jesus, that means in turn, we become servants. 
like Jesus, giving ourselves away for the benefit of other people. And what's crazy is that wherever you're at today, if you're an old believer and this is old news to you, servant leadership, yeah, I get it. Or you're a new believer and you just crossed the line between you know, knowing Christ and being public with your faith. Or you're not a believer at all. You're just still trying to figure out where you're at with the Lord. Wherever you are at today, this can, become, this can make you a more effective person at your workplace. When you decide at the core of what you do, it doesn't matter what you do, whether you're a singer, an actor, a leader, a producer, when you describe at the essence of what you do, I want to help people, you become more effective. But not only when we follow Jesus, we become leaders, but when you decide to be a servant, you become a leader intrinsically because you just want to help where there are gaps, where the thing's not happening. You want to be a benefit to people. And you become more effective. And this is what's crazy. You get more opportunity and more spotlight because you just want to make things better. A helper. A servant. And Jesus describes this. Jesus describes this in Mark chapter 10. Now Mark, we, we've talked about this before, but Mark is a person that hung out with Peter. Peter was one of the people in Jesus' inner circle. And so Mark only describes what he saw Peter doing and how he hung out with Jesus. And so in Mark chapter 10, if you have your Bible, go there. If you have your phone, click on it. If you don't have any of those things, look up on the screen. But Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 37, we're going to look there at this picture of servitude. Mark chapter 10. says in verse 32, it says they were on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. And again, he took the twelve aside and told them what, he was, what was going to happen to him. Verse 33, we were going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered. Over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Verse 33, continue. And they will condemn him. Now he's talking about himself. They will condemn him, hand him over to the Gentiles. Verse 34, watch this. They'll mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. But three days later, he will rise. Now notice this. This is fascinating. Jesus just told the disciples, four things are going to happen to me. I am going to be mocked. They're going to talk about me. They're going to put a crown of thorns on my head, a robe on my back. They're going to mock my leadership. They're not even going to believe I'm the king. They're going to spit on me. Spit in the Old Testament and New Testament was still spit. They're going to spit on me. They're going to flog me. They're going to rip my back open through flogging. 39 lashes. They all knew what he was talking about. And then he said, they're going to kill me. They're going to take my life. Now, it didn't take much explanation to figure out what he was saying there, right? Jesus actually says this to the disciples. And do you know what these jokers said in the next verse? Verse 35, then James and John, two of the disciples, the sons of Debbie, came to him and said, teacher, they said, we want you to do whatever we ask. He says, interesting, what, what are you asking? Verse 36, 
Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And he, he, he asked, verse 37. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Now understand, when Jesus says glory there, uh, it's, it's the Greek word doxai. What, what it means is when you are being honored, when you are in the spotlight, when you are being highlighted, when everyone is praising you, this is what we want. We want to be right next to you, to your right and to your left. So like when you're on the red carpet, and the paparazzi is clicking, and they're all looking at you, we want to be right there to your left and to your right. So you don't have to be a dynamic theologian to notice what happened. What happened here is they completely skipped over all the hard stuff. <laughs> they didn't ask, what is it going to look like when you get mocked? Jesus, what is it going to be like when you get spit on, when you get flogged, when you get killed? What is that going to be like? They only heard the last part. You're going to rise and you're going to be glorified. Awesome. Can we be there? <laughs> but we don't want to be a part of nothing else. And you see, it's, it's, it's called a myopic vision, a small vision. When people are out for themselves, they tend to skirt around or circumvent. They go around the hard things because they only want the glory. Now, what's funny is that the disciples are only outwardly stating what we all inwardly feel. Because at core, we are all to some degree glory hounds, praise the Lord. At core, we don't, who wants to go through the pain? Who wants to go through the struggle? They are longing for a position of power, and they don't even want to get into the sacrifice it takes to get into that position. Everybody wants the position. Nobody wants the pain. And so what happens here is that they just openly ask him. We want to be up front with you when things are going great. Martin Luther King called it a drum major instinct. That there's a part of us that loves to be out front. But we don't want to do the behind the scenes. And so Jesus notices this and What's, what's crazy is that the disciples noticed it as well. In verse 41, look there. It says, he then, when the, when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. They got upset. But notice this. James and John, what they were asking, the other ten wanted to ask to. They did not know that they, when you, when you look at the history of it, they didn't get upset because they could dare ask Jesus that question. They got upset because they thought, oh, you're getting an upper hand on us. Because they had that same thing inside them as well. They wanted the position and they wanted the power as well. It's so interesting that when these kind of things happen in an organization, when they see people getting, when people are feeling overlooked and they're seeing other people get positions, what tends to happen is there comes to be a culture of bringing other people down. And everybody kind of goes by the water cooler. It's like, how they get the position? You know what? They shouldn't have got it because Tisha should have got it. And everybody starts getting upset at one another. And so what is, what is getting birthed here by, uh, by the other ten? Envy, jealousy, 
anger. Yeah. An entire culture of envy, jealousy, and anger. And let me be clear. James and John wanted to spotlight for themselves, and the other ten wanted to spotlight for themselves as well. And there's a part of all of us that wants to highlight. We want the spotlight. We want all eyes on us. And so Jesus, um, Jesus, uh, verses 36 through basically 39, Jesus will basically tell those two that they can't handle that kind of pain. They'll call it a cup. They won't be able to handle that kind of uh, sacrifice that it will take. And so in verse 42, look there in your Bible. Jesus says something very powerful. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them as their high officials exercise authority over them. It's interesting, if you look up there, where it says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers lord it over that word there, it's a very unique word. It's only used twice in the New Testament. It's used here, and then it's also used in Matthew. And what's interesting is that it's not used anywhere else in Greek literature. It's a word basically formed to give us the idea of forcing someone to do what they don't want to do. It's this idea of misuse of authority, abusing authority. And what he's saying is everywhere in the world, the person at the top, look, look, look what he says. When he says the Gentiles, he's talking about every place else in the world. He says everywhere you look, every organization you're looking in, people force others to do what they say do. Because people want to get paid. So they're forced into service. And yet, Jesus is going to flip the script. In verse 43, he says, not so with you. Not so with you. Continue on in verse 43. He says, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. This probably rocked them. The reason why is because when he uses this imagery and this example of a slave or the imagery and example of a servant, they clearly understood what that was. The servant, more times than not, was the child in the home. They were the one that had to wash people's feet. They were the one, you see David in the Old Testament, he was the one having to tend to the sheep. They had to do all the dirty work. And then a slave, the imagery of a slave, they didn't have any, any volition of their own. They had to do what was best for the family. So when he said a servant, and when he said a slave, they knew exactly what he was saying. And yet when you look at this, there's a part of you that says, well, is Jesus saying that no one's to be the leader? That we're all just to be slaves, or they're all to be at the bottom? And yet Jesus is not saying that at all. What Jesus is talking about is not position. He's talking about the attitude. He's talking about the spirit by which you lead. The heart by which you lead. He's not saying we just need slaves and we need servants. He says we need people that are in authority to live like a servant. To be a servant to people. And so, so much so that the more authority and the more power you get, the more people you help. Because your attitude is of a servant. 
Your attitude is like the slave. Your attitude is to give yourself for other people. And so Jesus was, in many ways, inverting what they always understood. They always understood the people with most authority. They act hard, they act mean, and they force people into service. And now the people at the top are now at the bottom, and they're helping everyone else. He completely inverted the way that they saw leadership and the way that they saw service. And so what he is subtly saying is, don't look for glory. Look to help people. Look at how much opportunity you can have to help others and not to be in the spotlight and not to have people looking at you. And the more authority you have and the more power you have, the more you can help people. Now, this is not just an attitude we should have for the church. This is an attitude we need in society overall. That if this was working at the job you had now, this would be a better business. Um, there was an author, a guy named Jim Collins, and he wrote a book called Good to Great. And in that book, he talks about how these kinds of attitudes actually are helpful. He's not talking from a Christian perspective. He's just talking from a business perspective. In the book, Good to Great, Jim Collins admits that when he was first looking for a common denominator for business leaders, that the great companies, he said, he assumed that the research would lead him to discover that uh, the leader had charisma. Instead, he discovered that the best leaders had humility. It really wasn't about the person who had the most to say and the biggest personality. He also goes on to say in the same book that uh, he calls it a level five leader, but really he's talking about a great leader embodies a paradoxical mix of personal humility and professional will. They are ambitious to be sure, but ambitious first and foremost for the company and not for themselves. So he's saying in essence they're selfless, that a great leader is selfless. And a great staff culture, now, no, I, I've worked not only for the church, I've been in ministry since 98, but I've also worked in pharmaceutical companies, and I've also worked in nonprofit companies. And this is, um, we've had people come in and do like those staff trainings, like those workshops, where people come and they do, deal with all the consultation, and this, this happening over here in this department, and we need things to work better. I can whittle down a good portion of a lot of the consultations we got in the for-profit and the non-profit world. If everyone would begin to do one thing in the company, the, the entire company would start to work better. If every day, if people over in Department A and Department B, if every day they would not only talk, but they would begin to ask each other, how can I help you? Like, what can I do to help? The whole company would be different. People wouldn't just be fighting for their positions. People wouldn't just be fighting for their own honor. Because in every culture, in every organization, there's a glory hound in everybody. And so people are fighting for their name to be known, for the work that they do to get recognized. And people aren't wondering, how can I help you? They're wondering, how can I help me? How can I get my position higher? How can I get a promotion? They're not thinking about the organization in some total. They're thinking about how they can either make more money or get a bigger name. And that doesn't matter if it's a church, if it's a business, if it's a nonprofit. There is that part of all of us that, that longs for that glory. And if we could just will that, and that's just in the nonprofit, that's in the secular world. If people would begin to operate by that 
that mentality of how can I help. And you know what I've noticed? It's crazy. There are problems. Wherever you work right now, there are problems. Amen? Amen. There are problems. And I've found that there are really two types of people whenever a problem arises. There are people who initiate and there are people who complain. Notice, everybody sees the same problem, but only one group initiates to help while the other group sees the problem, but they talk amongst themselves. The initiators, they don't just react. They intercede, they step in. And the complainers, they only step in if they think it's gonna to work to their benefit and if they're gonna get something out of it. While the initiators just wanna to help to see people thrive. It's amazing how that works in every staff culture and every company. But if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, when you don't operate with the attitude of a helper, as, as, as a person who wants to help, you are limiting what God does in your own life. When you decide that the, that the core, I don't care what you do, I don't care what you do, if, if, if you preach, if you lead, if you sing, if you dance, I don't care what you do, when you whittle down what you do, the why to what you do is to help, to some degree, help people know Jesus, help people drink better, whatever you do. If you, if you whittle it down to helping people and you are a Christian, you unlock the power of God in your life and you unleash your potential. When you start to live that way, you start to have that attitude. When you say, I am here to help. I'm here to do the work, dirty work. I am the slave in this company. I am the servant. I am here to do the tough things that nobody else wants to do because I want to see others better. When you do that, you unlock potential in your life because you just want to help. And it's, it's amazing. John 14, the third person of the Trinity. God is Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity is called the Helper. And he has been placed inside every believer. And when the believer decides they want to be a helper, that person now empowers you to do things that you could never do on your own. He gives you power and strength to do things that you couldn't even have comprised. And you will have platforms and opportunities that you never thought you would ever have. But it's because the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And I can say this. I don't believe that God has favorites. God loves all his children. I don't think God has, uh, God has favorites. But I do believe God gives favorites. I believe God gives favorites. I believe that God gives some people opportunities. He won't give others. I believe God opens doors. He won't open for others. I believe God gets behind people. He won't get behind others. Because he knows that some people's agenda is simply to help and see the glory of the Lord, and some people are in it for themselves. And he unleashes his power on people that have decided that I am here to help people. Because you're about what the Father wants. You know, all day, y'all know I got two little kids. All day I get requests. We go to the store. Can I get a dog? We come home. Can I watch my show? All day, I get requests. But every now and then, something amazing happens. The other day, my daughter Faith was beautiful. She said to me, she said, Daddy, can I help you set the table? So what? 
on. She said, I saw that you were, you know, washing the dishes and you're getting dinner ready. I wonder if I could help you set the table. I see you always setting the table, and I wonder, can I help you set the table? After the shock and awe I felt, what blew me away was my little four-year-old daughter, who can't set the table on her own, is asking to set the table. But what's crazy is because I want her to do what I do, I stopped what I was doing, and there we were. I'm lifting up my daughter, and here we go. We put the plates out. Yeah, girl. <laughs> go get the napkins. Go get the napkins. Get the napkins. Get and, and I go up to the top, and I get the napkins with it. And then we get the fork. Let's set it out. We set. And now she's setting the table. And now she's put something together that she could never do on her own. But what happens is her father stepped in and empowered her to do what she could never do in her own power. And that's what will happen to you when you decide you want to be a helper. Amen. When all you want to do is help. When you decide that, you will radically change your life. Now let me tell you, Jesus had to pull away and tell the disciples, not so with you. Not so with you. Don't you be that way. Don't fall into the culture around you. Don't get sucked into the leadership culture around you. There is a vacuum in every culture, every culture, uh, every community. There is a leadership vacuum. People get pulled into a culture. Don't you get pulled in. You be different. Not so with you. You be a servant. You be a helper. People should look at you and say, man, I don't believe what they believe. But man, I'm glad they're here. I'm glad they're a part of what we're doing. Because you're so helpful. You may not be the most knowledgeable. You may not be the most skilled. You may not even be the most effective. But you will leave a mark on wherever you are because of the character you bring to the table. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you, when you do it by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will be doing things you never thought you could do. Well, you say, well, why would God do that? Why would he just unleash his power on people to do that? Because you've got to know that everybody has a mission statement, even if you've never written it down. Everybody's got a mission statement. You, you're, whatever your mission statement is, is why you do what you do. You know the good thing? Jesus gave us a mission statement. He gave us why I do what I do, what I'm here for. Jesus in Mark 10, 45, this last verse here, he says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but the reason why he came was to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He says, I did not come for all the glory and the spotlight. Many times Jesus would avoid that. I came to serve and give my life away for the benefit of others. And when you do that, when you give yourself away, you are looking like Jesus. You are following him, acting like he would act. Now, to not get too bogged down in terms, when Jesus says he's giving himself away, as a ransom, there's many directions we could go with that, but there is a deep theological term called substitutionary atonement. You can Google it sometime, write it down, and impress your friends, praise the Lord. But there's this term, substitutionary atonement. And you know what it means? Just look at the root word, substitute. 
It means that Jesus died in our place. And that he accomplished the work on the cross for our benefit and for our behalf. And so he was substituting himself for us. Did you, um, did you have a substitute teacher growing up? Yeah. Anybody? Were you like me? When, you, when the substitute teacher, oh, praise God. <laughs> Were you like me when the substitute teacher came in? Uh, turn up. Yeah, no. yeah, it was like it was like Miss Jenkins here every day, every day. Miss Jenkins skilled. She'll call you out. Yeah. Oh, look at Miss Louise. She's here. And you start warming your head. You don't even know where the TV is. You don't even know where nothing is. Dude. You don't even know. You know. You you asking me. You asking me where the bathroom is. I tell you. I go. I go show you. You do all these things, right? Because you know the substitute is there. And at the essence of all that is, you know good and well, you're not supposed to be here. Somebody else is supposed to be here. And you know what? When you look at the cross of Jesus, you should look at it not, you know, you've seen those symbols of Jesus hanging on the cross. Jesus never deserved the cross, but I deserve it. And he's not supposed to be there. I'm supposed to be there. He substituted himself for me. And when you look at the work of Jesus, yes, we ought to be in awe of the things that he's done, but at the core of what he's done, he served someone who couldn't do anything on their own. They couldn't help themselves, and I couldn't help myself, and he is my substitute. And when I look at the cross, I see someone who is dying in my place. Jesus came to serve me. He served me, and he has served me well. And this is why I serve other people, because I've been served. Because he has died for all of my sin. And now I long to help other people know him. And that's why we do what we do. And you have to ask yourself, why do you do what you do? Do you step into your office? Do you do what you do to be served? To have your name known or your, your, your resume built up? You can, and it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or if you're a non-Christian. It doesn't matter if, even if you're a pastor. There are pastors who want to be served, who want their name and their fame known. Whose name are you doing what you do for? At the core, why do you do what you do? You have to ask yourself, are you a, are you a helpful person? You know, when you die, Praise the Lord. Not many people are going to remember you. And that's just the truth. Five years from now, if you, if you die today, five years from now, you will be a faint memory. But the name of Jesus will live on forever. Why not do, why not serve someone whose name will live on forever? The Bible says that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess the name above all names. That means his name is above my name. And I serve Jesus because his name is everlasting and he can help more people. If you're serving, if your life is about you, what a small vision. What a small vision. What a, what a small kind of lifestyle. Living life for you. Living life selfish. Living life selfish. But what if we live life selfless? What if we gave ourselves for others and for the name of Jesus? 
Are you a helpful person? And you do it for the name of Jesus. And that's why you do what you do. I pray that that at the core is why you do what you do. And then when things get tough and things get rough, you still do what you do. You sacrifice because you want to help people, not because you want a great name. You will be tested. Whatever you do, whatever you try to accomplish, you'll be tested. And if you've done it for the glory of Jesus, it will empower you to do great things. But if you've done it for your own name, you will face much sacrifice either way. But you'll become bitter and resentful because your name's not getting out there like you want it. Do it for his glory and his name. We ask all these things of Jesus. Empower us. Bless us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for your power. We pray for your blessing. We pray for your honor and glory. We also pray, God, that we would do things, Jesus, that we could not do on our own. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would give us the power. Holy Spirit, I pray, we pray for your blessing. We pray for your blessing on the work of our hands, whatever we're doing.